one of the speakers got up, Pastor David, in his Redeli regalia, with the Redeli sword, he stood up and he um, said that, yes, we used to use our swords in a way that was very damaging. We used them to hurt other people. But now we have a sword that cuts right into us and transforms us and changes our lives. You're listening to the Flight Follow Podcast. opening, you heard Nick Swanepoel, a Wycliffe Bible translator and Africa Inland Mission Church planter. He and his wife Lynn began working with the Rindili people in 1981. Last August, they witnessed the fruit of their labors at the dedication ceremony for the Rindili New Testament in Kora, Kenya. Today, we're going to hear about everything that went into bringing God's Word to the Rindili and how the Swanepoel stuck with it despite some roadblocks early on. We'll also learn about the role MAF played, and then visit another translation project that's in the early stages. I'm Jen Wolf, and I'll be your host today, here on Flight Follow. I should explain that MAF is a global organization, and there are other MAF arms around the world. And while this podcast is produced by MAF US, Nick's ministry is served by MAF International. The Rendili translation is just one of many supported by MAF programs. Let's hear what life was like for Nick, his wife Lynn, and their three young kids when they first arrived in Kor, Kenya in 1981. Kor area is uh, just, just very, very barren. Um, there's a few thorn scrub trees uh, here and there, and uh, we would have we would have dust storms that come through, maybe for three four hours, where you just have dust coming filtering right through the house. Um, our house was uh, a frame built of corrugated iron. It had double walls uh, to give us a bit of coolness in the desert, and. Uh, so that helped a bit, but it was not waterproof and it wasn't bug proof. So when the rains came, we'd have water running right through the house. We would have bugs coming through the walls and uh, sitting around the lights and so on. So um, it, was, it was quite challenging. We have two seasons. We have uh, the dry season and then we have the little bit of rain and then we have a more dry season. At the end of the year, there's supposed to be a little bit of rain as well, but quite often uh, the, the rainy season is only maybe a shower or two. Um, so the, the, uh, the area is very, very harsh. We were working uh, with the Rendili people who are nomadic, and at that stage they were very nomadic. They uh, herd camels, goats, and sheep, and so they um, go off very far looking for grazing and for water for the animals. It was rather like stepping into the time of Abraham, 
very little change had taken place. And in fact, the Rendelli, um, I think part of their survival technique was just to keep the outside world away and not uh, allow too much to influence them. So it was quite difficult to, to make inroads and we, we found it very difficult. People um, remember going out to a village and the lady picked up rocks and started throwing rocks at us, more out of fear than anything else. Um, and so we, we prayed very much about what to do. Uh, we, we'd come to work as Bible translators. The language was not written. And so we had to learn the language directly from the people. Uh, there was no dictionary, no grammar. Um, so it was uh, hands-on learning. But before they could really dive into the language learning, they found themselves in the midst of a terrible drought. The one that was affecting Ethiopia had reached into Kenya as well. We, we just saw dead camels and dead goats and dead sheep all over the place and very, very hungry, desperate people, children with extended stomachs, and, and it was just horrifying and very difficult. We're the new people on the block then. We don't know how to handle this. Um, so at that stage, there was no World Food Program. World Food Program currently would be looking out and setting up warnings for uh, possible disasters, and setting up food chains so that there'd be food in storage. But there was nothing like that in those days. And so we basically ran frantically from one agency to another. We'd get one load of food from this group, and then uh, another group would, uh, we'd, we'd hear of them, and we'd be able to get a little bit of food from them. And so Lynn and I basically put aside all of our language work uh, in order to do the distribution of the food. So we noticed after about, uh, well, quite a long time into this process that the Rendelli started to notice that we, they, they saw that we actually loved them. And God used that terrible, terrible drought situation to give us a breakthrough in our relationship with them. So that was a really, um, you know, God's sovereignty is, is something so wonderful. And um, we don't understand disasters and we don't understand the hard times, but we do know that God is in control. And so we could trace his hand in that whole process. Also, I like to mention the central role of MAF in our lives up in the desert. Um, in our early years, uh, we were living in a very, very remote place. The roads were very undeveloped. The roads were dangerous. There were frequent um, raids by bandits on the uh, vehicles traveling up and down. And uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful thing that we could rely on MAF to, to help us in, uh, first of all, in often flying up uh, people who were coming to look at the project, uh, people who were funding the project, 
people who were praying, and it it was wonderful because they could uh, get up to Red Delhi in in two hours instead of spending uh, 10, 11, 12 hours on the road and facing the dangers of the road as well, the medical emergencies and the medical help. And flying personnel, we'd need to get the translators down to Nairobi for a consultant check, and it was very dangerous to take their computers on the road. So they would fly, and MAF uh, gave them a good rate, uh, reduced rate, um, because they uh, were working for a local organization. And so that was also such a help to us. In the earlier years, MEF did not have a regular flight scheduled to Marsabit District, the area where the Swanapools lived, but they could request an MEF plane if they needed one. But then, MEF began shuttle flights to the area. I think for MEF, I think financially it was a struggle. But when the droughts got very, very bad, and the different agencies were involved, MEF eventually was, was really filling that flight and indeed started twice a week to fly to Marsabit on a regular basis. And uh, it was just just a great help to us. After the rains finally came, Nick and Lynn realized that many Rendilli families were destitute because of the large number of animal deaths. So the Swanapools found themselves taking on another unexpected task. We got involved with the restocking program. So as you as you can hear, this is this was not going to be a conventional translation project. So we were buying camels, goats, and sheep, and we were able to restock three over three hundred families, giving them back their ability to survive economically and to have their own uh, herd of animals, um, and that was a very significant. Uh, uh, event for them. Finally, after several years, the Swanapools were able to jump into the work they had come there to do. My wife, Lynn, uh, designed an amazing literacy program, uh, but you must understand that literacy, literature, papers, books were a total um, unknown to the vast majority of the Rindali. Lynn did some creative things. She had, you wouldn't know which is the front or the back of a book if you'd never been literate. And so the front of the book would have the front of a man and the back would have him uh, from drawn from the back. Um, the other thing she did was she had a page of Rendelli uh, brand marks that come on the camel. And so the uh, reader would be asked, now, what do you see there? And he'd say, oh, that camel is a Saleh clan. Uh, It's got the brand mark down the front right leg. And so I know that it's Saleh clan. And so Lynn used that illustration to show that, yes, there's a mark that stands for something else. And in the same way, when you learn to read, you will see a mark on the page which stands for a sound. And she then could introduce the idea of consonants and vowels and so on. Just as the first groups of Rindili were beginning to read and write, the Book of Mark was published. Nick says it had an amazing impact. For one woman in particular, it changed everything. She said, I I love all of this uh, teaching. I want to learn all of these wonderful things. 
but you can leave out the bit about Jesus because we've got our own God and we don't need Jesus. Uh, but then just at that time, she fell ill and she was lying in the hut and somebody gave her the gospel of uh, Mark that was now available and she was literate so she could read and she started reading from chapter 1 verse 1 and then by the time she got to chapter 12 which speaks of the uh, Pharisees who had spoken against Jesus their resistance she recognized herself in there and a deep conviction came over her chapter 13 speaks about Jesus coming in great power and glory on the clouds and she was smitten she didn't know what to do and just there in the hut with nobody else with her she cried out and said Lord help me and the Lord revealed himself to her and she was wonderfully saved and and came to grasp the gospel in an amazing way she immediately tried to explain what had happened to her uh, to the other people and they thought she'd gone completely mad this woman happened to be a songwriter she walked out of the church the first day and the lord started to give her songs and she she created many songs in rindali christian songs but in the rindali idiom uh, which really transformed our our singing and uh, Really, people enjoyed uh, hearing the, the Christian songs in their own idiom, and it's very, very uh, great impact on the worship and on the understanding of the gospel. And so the transformation started. The, the Christians got together, and they started reading uh, uh, the gospel of Mark, and they came across the passage where Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees and saying, yes, you, you keep the, the traditions of the elders, but you neglect the word of God. And so as they read that passage and they prayed about it, they felt that God was saying to them that they should stop participating in the sacrifices in the tradition of the elders. The Rindali have a, a Passover similar to the Passover ceremony where every family brings an animal that's without blemish to the, the front of the hut and all of the males gather around, they wash the, uh, the goat or sheep with uh, milk and then the animal is slaughtered and the blood is applied to the forehead of all the males in that family. And so when they considered this process, this, um, this passage, they then also said, well, Jesus, it's surely our complete sacrifice. We don't need to be doing these other sacrifices. And that was a very, very um, decisive time in the life of the church. And, of course, it, it brought uh, a lot of opposition, a lot of problems for the Christians as they um, withdrew from doing what every every other Rendeli person does and it had a really significant impact um, but they stood firm and people could not stop but notice that there was a difference about the lives of the Christians because they would do things that nobody else did they would go and visit 
when somebody's had a, a death in the family, they would go and visit and uh, take a little gift and so on. The lady would say, but why are you doing this? You're not even my family. You're not my clan. And they would say, we've come because of the love of Jesus. And they would pray with that lady and, and have such an impact. And so the gospel has continued to go out. We finally got to complete the translation of the New Testament in and had the dedication in August last year. We had people coming from all over, from America, from Canada, from South Africa, from the UK. And, and of course, MAF was very much part of that whole process uh, in flying up people uh, together with AIM Air, um, the, the air arm of Africa Inland Mission. And so um, we, we were just very grateful for that also. MAF had the wonderful privilege of flying in the New Testaments. After the boxes of Bibles were unloaded, they were tied onto camels and transported to the ceremony where the Rindili people had been waiting, singing and dancing for hours. that were normally used for transporting water and so on. Um, they uh, were now transporting the books and um, it was a really amazing occasion. The, uh, the books were opened and a whole group of Christian uh, leaders prayed over the books and then the, uh, each of the translators, each of the people involved in various facets of the translation were given a copy. And one of the speakers got up, uh, Pastor David, in his Redeli regalia with the Redeli sword. He stood up and he um, said that, yes, we used to use our swords in a way that was very damaging. We used them to hurt other people, but now we have a sword that cuts right into us and transforms us and changes our lives. And this is very, very wonderful to us. The next day was Sunday, and Nick preached on Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. Hebrania, wahwelisa ino kaleyede, vorat arche, wahachinyaten gedibure, in times past, God spoke to us in various ways through the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken through his son, and then I also applied that to, in these last days, for the Rendili, he's spoken to us through the scriptures. Nick and Lynn lived with the Rendili people for 34 years. Now they're working remotely from the UK, helping with the Old Testament translation. How would they remain so steadfast? I, I don't think that we are particularly strong people, but I, one thing that was very, very important to Lynn and I was that God, we felt that God had called us to be 
to work amongst the Rindali. We had um, Leonard read Isaiah 18, go swift messengers to a people tall and smooth, a people who live beyond the rivers of Cush, uh, people who are feared by others around them, uh, people of strange speech. And uh, as we prayed about that, eventually uh, we'd seen um, the, the listing of translation needs in Kenya. Uh, we were the second team to, to actually go to Kenya. The Kenya was a new uh, area at that time, and the Rendeli were, were top of the list. And we didn't know anything about them. I was born in Kenya, but I did not know anything about the Rendeli. And we, we went to the library and started to read up about them, and we saw that Yes, they lived just beyond Ethiopia. And the translation we'd been looking at said that beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. And so we felt that God was calling us to, to work with the Rindali. And that was the, the thing that we, we fell back on uh, every time, was that God had called us, and the God who had called us would also see us through. And... God has been just so faithful um, to, to uh, give us the promises and the encouragements that we needed uh, at times when things seem to be very difficult. Nick has a message for MEF donors. I would like to say to them that what they have done has transformed the lives of many, many people um, in very practical ways. By giving, I think they have helped the flights to to make the contact with the missionaries, to have uh, the support that the missionaries need, to have the finances come up in a way that is not dangerous, and to bring up people who were there to 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 stand alongside us and to see our work. Maybe a a leader, maybe someone from a church to actually physically uh, see things firsthand. Uh, some of our friends who came in uh, August last year had been praying for Rendeli for many, many years. One of the ladies was the uh, missions uh, chair lady and knew very much about Rendeli. Um, through the many years of getting prayer letters and so on. But she was absolutely shocked in a good way by seeing how much had happened on the ground. She couldn't believe. She thought, we're going to have the dedication. We stayed up there for, for four days. Uh, she thought, we're going to have the dedication, and then we'll climb up on a hill, and then we don't really know what we'll be doing the next, uh, the rest of the time. But as she went around and could see the schools and could see the water development, could see um, lives that have been changed, visiting in the homes and so on, she, she, you know, seeing firsthand makes all the difference in the world for, for, for supporters on the ground uh, who have been praying for all of those years. And so um, that's the kind of thing that an air arm like MAF makes possible for people to see and to make uh, their prayers a, a 
a great reality as they, they uh, come to understand the depth of what they are praying for and to see in a very practical way what God has done through their prayers and through their support. Thank you. Let's travel to Papua, Indonesia, where MEFUS has five bases and supports over 30 translation projects. You'll hear from one couple about what it's been like to work on the Moi translation, and we'll visit with some of the translation helpers as well. As you'll hear, there are a few things in common with the Rindili project, namely the remoteness and ruggedness of the area, though the landscape is quite different. I used to think I was fairly fit until I got here and then started hiking around these mountains and it's just straight up, straight down. And, and, uh, you, you know, you're hiking a distance of four miles as the crow flies, but it takes seven hours to hike, so, you know, so it's just very, 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 very difficult. And we found that we had to exercise just to be able to live here. And so we, we have a regular exercise routine and it, but anyways, it's just very deep, untouched jungle and very steep, rugged mountains. Yeah, We've heard it referred to as the egg carton of the world, just up and down, up and down. <laughs> That's Stephen and Carolyn Crockett. They're with Ethnos 360, and they've been living and working with the Moy people in Papua since the year 2000. Building relationships in those early days was uh, exciting, humorous, challenging. <laughs> fine, actually, but a lot of hard work. We would, in order to get to know them, we would need to go to their gardens with them, uh, learn what they, how they live, sleep in their huts with them, just see how they function on a day-to-day basis. And living among them here definitely helped with that. We were able to uh, be more involved in their lives. But because of the geography here, we ended up having to do a lot of hiking around and and going and visiting them as well. I think because of the monolingual situation that we were dealing with, uh, it had to start with relationships. And so we just tried to immerse ourselves in the culture. Whatever they were doing, we wanted to be a part of it and and be as enthusiastic about it as possible. And then through those relationships, then we began to ask questions about things that were happening in the culture. And that's the language actually came from that. So we didn't start with language and then work the other way. It started with those relationships. I think, too, another thing that we came in with the attitude of being learners Mm. instead of teachers. So we came in just learning from them, observing. We would ask them, like Stephen said, why? Why are you doing that? But we would not give what we thought they should be doing (laughs) because we were coming in as learners, especially initially there. So then they were very open with us and explaining everything they were doing. Before they could introduce the gospel to the Moy, Stephen and Carolyn taught literacy because... If they don't know how to read and write, they can't read God's Word. So one of the things we did is we actually taught literacy before we evangelized them. And the reason why is because the we went through a literacy program. We had a few group, a few readers. And then the very first day that we went to teach, we handed them scripture booklets and we opened up to Genesis 1-1 and we said, no, you read for yourself what God wants to say to you. This isn't our religion. This is what the creator of the universe wants to say to you. So they would open it up. And then Genesis 1-1. So 
you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the world and, and the earth. And, and uh, right away, they were like, well, who is this creator? What's his name? So right away, everything is just based on, you know, God's word, teaching from that. So translation, literacy have been working hand in hand. As you can imagine, the process of translation is a painstaking one. Translation is a huge project. Uh, I, I've estimated as I've looked at my time charts, from the time I study a verse, do the recordings, all the checking, all the way through to the very end where it's approved by a consultant, I can hand it out to people. It takes up to two hours per verse to get that done in a, in a way that's acceptable. So anyway, it's it's just a long, very, very long process. And and we're thankful that the Moy are so enthusiastic about, about God's word. Otherwise, it would... <laughs> we'd kind of wonder what we're doing. So The Crockett's end goal is to complete the New Testament and about 5,000 verses out of the Old Testament. So what does that process look like on a day-to-day basis? I, I try to get up fairly early in the morning to get a start on the, on the day. We often have a lot of interruptions, people needing things. And so I just need a concentrated block of time to be able to focus on things, especially the exegesis where you're trying to study it out, figure out what it means. Um, you're trying to put some things into, you know, into right words and stuff like that. I think usually, usually in a five or six hour, six hour period of time, I can get um, between six to 10 verses translated if I'm working in the epistles. If I'm in narratives, maybe 15 verses or more. It, it just depends. The afternoons, by then my mind is kind of fried from focusing so much on translation. I will often do... Uh, I will start working on maybe lessons, Bible lessons, or checking with people, or you know, just different things like that. But usually, my mornings are spent working on the translation. Carolyn works with me doing comprehension checking with local Moy speakers, and we have a translation team of around five, six guys, something like that. Uh, we also have outside consultants that will visit, and they'll check our translation as well. You know, through a pretty extensive process. So that's that's our translation team. And as far as how the gospel has impacted the Moy people. The Moy have been, we've been so pleasantly surprised, actually, but the Holy Spirit's really moved in their hearts to make them passionate about His Word. Very often, the ladies will, will share with me different things they're learning, but then sometimes I'll say, oh, that reminds me of something in Scripture where it tells about when Jesus uh, fed the 5,000, the, then they'll say, oh, you're talking about, and they'll give me the exact reference. And I'm so surprised, but that's because they're just in Scripture so much. I think God's Word has, has changed everything for them. I think not, not only spiritually, where they're living in such fear of evil spirits, they're living in such fear of death, uh, but, then to, but then to know that the Creator of the universe cares for them. He has a future plan for them. He has them here for the for a purpose. There's heaven waiting for them. There's there's just a joy that permeates the whole the whole community. Let's hear directly from some of the Moy translation helpers about how important this work is to them. Stephen will introduce each one and then translate for them. These are just three of our ten active Bible teachers right now that have been very very faithful for so many years. We have Doigobi or Neres, and he is an, an, one of the elders in the church here. He's a very sober-minded individual. He takes a lot of time working with the kids. He's very concerned about the next generation that they come to know God. And we're just very, very blessed to have him as part of our Bible teaching team. 
earlier you were asking um, when you're when you're working on God's talk and you're translating it what makes it a big work that you're involved in he says and I'm going to tell you what I'm thinking God's talk is not a small thing this talk that came right from the lips of God it was given to prophets like Moses to, to put down on paper and then from from those people that's been passed on down to us until we now can, we can look at paper and we can see the very lips of God there we can look at that and we can say oh that God's like that or God's like this we can see what God is like because of his word is this is another thing that's big about God's talk we look at God's talk and we realize that's what God's like but what we're like is we're like dead-hearted people it's like our it's our hearts are like a bunch of corpses before God is lost in our sin and we see that God lives above and beyond everything he's glorious Actually, because of how unworthy we are and how lost we are in our sins, God shouldn't have given his grace to us the way he did. But instead of withholding this good news from us, God intentionally passed it on to man so that we can know the way of salvation. And because we have God's words, God's lips on paper like that, and we can read it for ourselves. And then here we have Delma, and he's been one of an elder for quite some time now. He is a dynamic speaker has a great heart for evangelism. Whenever there's someone who is struggling with a sin, uh, struggling spiritually, he's very quick to come alongside them and help them along. Uh, he's a very personable guy. Almost every day he walks around making the rounds, seeing how everyone's doing. He says, if we are working on God's word and we mess it up and make it so it's not right, it, it's going to make ineffective the power of God's word. can't rely on our own wisdom. This is what's in God's word is what God intentionally wants to say to mankind. And so we want to represent that accurately. He says, this, this is another thing. He says, I'm very, very thankful to God. I'm praising him. What is really neat is because God has given him us his word. There is nothing that can defeat us. We can face death without fear. So what he's thinking in his heart is, man, way to go, God, way to go. <laughs> this is Sapaye, and he was one of our first believers, and he is helping with, with translation. Uh, he used to help with medicine a bit. Uh, he's a key Bible teacher, and uh, just a great man of God. We get great encouragement from him. So that's Sapaye or Nicanor, it says regarding God's talk, it's a big thing. God's word is huge, and the reason why it's huge is because, because God has no beginning, He has no end. He is eternal from eternity past, and His word is exactly the same way. He and He's passing it on to us. So this is a huge talk. When we're translating God's word, it's a time for us to examine our own hearts so that we're not just translating frivolously and without thought, but that we're putting great thought into it and trying to transfer, translate it accurate, accurately. He said, not only that, but God has entrusted each of us in the body of Christ different gifts and abilities, and that's what he's given us, and we're gonna, we want to be faithful to do it to the best of our ability. Mm -hmm. And when the translation is finished, this is Sepaye's hope for how it will impact the people. He says, what my great desire is that is that my relatives and everybody living on this land here is that they would hear God's word and that they would put their faith in it. And I say that because I'm able to believe in God because he believes, he knows he has a hope for the future, but he wants that for his relatives and everybody as well. So he wants them to understand their sin and their need for a savior. And that's why we're so happy about the people that are going over to this other village of Mayo 
to evangelize them because now our relatives that are living over there are going to join us and be able to live in heaven with us. Let's jump back to Stephen and Carolyn and find out what kind of effect the gospel has had on the Moy community. We've got to, we've got to remember this is still in a process. <laughs> so so we, we will often look at what's going on here as a lot of our believers are in an adolescent stage. Sometimes they seem quite mature beyond their years and then sometimes they seem like they're back in grade school and as far as some of the things that they do. And I, I think the idea of one of the themes that runs through their culture is, is kinship and their connection with each other. And it's been very hard for them. Those, those bonds are often stronger than their kinship as a body of Christ. And I think that this is one of the great hurdles that we're facing is we're wanting them, we're wanting it to impact the community more where there's more of a unity and they're working together and they're taking ownership for things. And so, so this question about how has it affected, affected the community actually kind of points out one of their, I think one of their weaknesses maybe that we're really hoping to see some change in over the mm-hmm. you know, next few years. They're so individualistic. There's no leader or chief in this, in this village. Everybody is their own boss. And so to all of a sudden um, have us as a community of believers with Bible lead teachers, elders, it's just very foreign to their way of thinking. So it's a long process, but we're getting there. There have been other changes within the Moy community since the Crockett's arrived. A few years ago, the first elementary school and a medical clinic opened in the village. An airstrip completed in 2008, made it possible for those to be here. Uh, it was all done with picks, shovels, wheelbarrows, and um, also we had to bring in a, uh, national teams from out in town to help us with it because the Moy had never seen an airplane up close. They really never seen a wheel, you know, so why does this thing need a long strip to land on? Why can't it just land like the helicopter? Uh, all of these things were just new to them. They didn't want to dig in the ground because they thought they were releasing evil spirits. So we, we faced some challenges in that respect. Mm-hmm. It was just a long, long process until we finally had enough where MAF could start servicing us. And then we finished the strip up to about 435 meters. And now, now the Kodiak can come in fine. And yeah, so, so we're all set. But it was a long, never-ending process. <laughs> it felt like it anyways. We could not be here without flight services. So uh, our the advantage of MAF is that they're only living 25 minutes. They, they have a base 25 minutes from us. And so they're definitely our closest support. Everything that's happened in here is because of these flight services that, that you guys have offered us. And um, the, the Moy themselves have benefited not only from medicine, but physical material things as well. And we have too. So yeah, this... Yeah, it would, it would probably be impossible. I, I can't even imagine because uh, now the Moy can get out to town. They can hike for three days. They can get on a canoe for two days, and then they can get out to, to town. But try to imagine bringing your supplies in that way would be absolutely impossible. Let alone us trying to hike out there would take yeah. us at least twice as long, maybe three times as long. And if they say it's difficult, then you know it's <laughs> three times as difficult for us. So yeah, we, there's no way we could live in here like that if we didn't have MAF helping us from Navi. Yeah. I've, I've been thinking a lot since you've been in here and 
you know, just looking around and asking people how MAF has benefited them. And, and uh, when I think back to our relationship with MAF, our working relationship with them, they were there before we came in, helping us with surveys. They helped us during the surveys. They helped us even during the days when we didn't have an airstrip. Uh, they would buy our supplies for us a lot of times out in town, acted like our supply buyers. Uh, when we had a, a part that would break down the generator, they would do an airdrop and get it to us as quick as possible. So we feel like we've had our extended team has, has we've been working very, very closely with MAF through the years. And we're so thankful because, yeah, and even to this day, uh, when the pilots land here and they drop off whatever our orders have been, they, they, they're, they're very relaxed and they're wanting to know what we're doing, what we're working on, what passages of scripture we're translating, what's some of the stress we're facing. They're very, very engaged with what's, what's going on here. Uh, last time one of the pilots was here, he asked me about a, a problem passage that I was working on. He pulls out his phone and he's looking for resources to help me with the passage. So <laughs> it was, it was just, it's that kind of friendship and camaraderie we have with MEF. And so we feel, we feel extremely spoiled with that arm of support that has always been there for us over these yeah, 18 years. So you can probably add to that too. Well, I was thinking, uh, we live in such a remote area with no hospital, no grocery store, no mm -hmm. pharmacy, uh, anywhere near at all. And so just knowing that MAF is willing to fly in here and bring our supplies, if we have a medevac or something, they're very willing to help us. That actually uh, lifts a lot of stress and pressure for us. And we're able to serve here, uh, just knowing that uh, there's other people out there that care and want to be, mm. are available for us. MEF will continue serving the Moy people and the Crockett's. But what do Stephen and Carolyn desire for the Moy in the future? Our ultimate hope for the Moy people is that they be mature in Christ. We want, we want to see maturity. And we know that Bible translation literacy, that's, that's a huge part of it. We know that their relationship their identity as a church here and the way they connect with the outside world, that's important. We know that leadership in the church, disciples and being discipled, we want, we want to see all this taking place within a church. So that's, that's our ultimate goal. Regardless of what else happens, we want to see them mature in Christ. We want to see their lives counting. And uh, so that's what, that's what we strive for. That's why we're, we haven't left yet because the, the word of God isn't, the New Testament's not translated yet. And they need that for that maturity. So that I think that's our our biggest goal for them. I was thinking uh, part of our goal is making sure that they are the more you have a community where they're if, where they have education, where they have clinic, even if we're not here. And up to this point, a couple of years ago, we were the only ones that were offering that to them. So we're so thankful that now we have these other team members here that are are helping us with the education of our children the health needs of our of the people uh, all around. So, so yes, we would like to see them a mature church here and then also functioning as a community where this becomes a very healthy environment for everybody. So those are just two examples of Bible translation projects that MEF is serving. It is a privilege to have a part in bringing God's Word to remote people groups. 
and to hear about lives being transformed. After all, that's why MAF is here, to help isolated people experience the love of Christ. If you support MAF, then you've had a role in helping Bible translation projects move forward. a production of Mission Aviation Fellowship, where we use aviation and technology to bring the love of Jesus Christ to isolated people. To learn more about this unique ministry, visit maf.org, where you'll find the latest news and stories from our programs around the world, read updates from our missionaries, and learn about job and volunteer opportunities. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And be sure to follow our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Special thanks to Nick Swanepoel for chatting with me over Skype, and to Stephen, Carolyn, and the Moy people who were visited by our film crew. Thanks also to The Seed Company for allowing us to use some of their audio from the Rindili Bible Dedication. These episodes come together with the help of Tracy Worry, our Director of Marketing and Communication, Chris Burgess, our Communication and Media Manager, and Lem Malabuyo, our Editor. Thank you for listening to Flight Follow. Until next time, this is Jen Wolf, signing clear.